0: Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to liveoakbank.com think. The second is Hood & Strong. Hood & Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood & Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood & Strong can help your search. Acquisition and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe, at JZHOU at hoodstrong.com. The third is Oberly Risk Strategies. Oberly is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to surge funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Velker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly riskcom or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly riskcom And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at a. E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at theoperatorshandbook.com. My guest, Mike Botkin, has recently acquired a landscaping company in Orlando, Florida called BMB Landscaping and has finished his first 30 days in the business. One unique aspect of his deal is he raised his equity entirely through Twitter, which we talk about at the end of the episode. Mike and I discuss why he decided to acquire a landscaping business, what he's learning from the seller and employees as he's getting adjusted to being the new owner, building trust with employees and customers, and the roll-up potential of other landscaping companies in his area. If you're about to acquire a company and are curious on what your first few weeks are going to be like in the new company, this is an episode you have to listen to. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us, Mike. And first off, congrats for closing on your landscaping business. It's very exciting. I'd love to hear about that and how you raised your money through Twitter and all that process and how your first 30 days are going. And we're a little over 30 days now, but the first month or so of your business is going to be fun to chat about. But I want to first hear about your background and how you got into this and why you decided to go into landscaping.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's been a wild ride so far, for sure. A little bit about me. So born and raised in Orlando, Florida, single mom, two jobs, went to college <laughs> at the University of South Alabama, the Harvard of Alabama, I like to say, half jokingly, was super involved in sports my entire life. And growing up, my dream was to be a high school coach and teacher because the benefits of everything that a teacher has of salary and summers off and all that, I thought that was the best in the world. So I did that after college and I just found out the education profession wasn't for me after a few years. The incentives to continue high excellence of growth of teaching is just not there, and I like to challenge myself. I left the educational world and ended up going to a startup called Crossover Intelligence based out of New York. I joined shortly after the Series A, and we ended up growing the business to about just over 100 employees at the end of Series B. And there was an exit to Blue Star Sports, which was backed by Jerry Jones and the Dallas Cowboys. And in that time going from the educational world to the startup of Crossover, at Crossover, it was very much just get it done. And I was in the education profession and it was very systematic. And just being in a get it done world where one day you're cold calling, the next day you're handling biz dev issues, the next day you're handling marketing issues. It was very eye-opening and very rewarding to see the progress that it made, but also the compounding effect of everyone's efforts of just getting things done and what that did for the company and definitely the space, which that company has been reacquired from a Microsoft supplier actually today is where it lies. So after Crossover sold to Blue Star Sports, I joined a real estate development company in Orlando called Feltrum Group. And the core of the company is real estate development where we bought raw land, entitled it, engineered it, master planned it, and ended up selling it off to national builders. That's a great business. It's unbelievable business. They're not growing more land, right? So there's a finite amount of land available and the premium pricing you get on that is a really good return. I ended up joining as the chief operating officer of the business. And the primary goal of that was When you're buying raw land, the outcome sometimes is anywhere from three to five to eight years later, depending on national builders when they take you down of lots. So what we created inside of that parent company was operating businesses at cash flow. So this sounds a little crazy to say now, but a restaurant, a bar and grill, an event business, a resort. We had a full service resort. We had anywhere, depending on if we were buying and selling, 800 to 1,200 properties under management for property management company. So and amongst that, the managers reported to me of each of those businesses and industries. So I got to see a first level view of those industries. You're talking about the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, the service industry, the event industry with weddings and business meetings, and the dynamics that all those intertwined with but also the pros and cons of those businesses and one of the benefits as well of being there was being on the buy side of a lot of those investments and going out and looking in industries whether there was something we could purchase and acquire or if there was something we needed to create and we ended up at the very tail end of my time there going into home service businesses which entailed pool service, landscaping, house cleaning, maintenance, all these other sorts of businesses that you can bucket into home services. And it really opened my eye up into what that industry is. And that's what led me into landscaping in a roundabout way.
0: Yeah. So once you decided to go into landscaping, what did you do to start looking for businesses to acquire?
1: Well, let me zoom out just a little bit for this part of the discussion. I don't have some childhood dream of owning a landscaping business. I don't know many people that do, but the industry in general, taking away the business that I bought, but the industry in general is super fragmented. I mean, I've said this on Twitter and it was an aha moment to me. COVID was happening and everything was shut down, especially in Orlando, tourism capital of the world with Disney and SeaWorld and everything else. So, and we shut 80% of our staff down during that time, I mean, think about the industry that I said we were in, the restaurant industry, the event industry, the resort industry. Our real estate company stayed going full functioning and our marketing team and all those people. But the core people, we had to shut down. And that was a hard decision. But I'm going to the office a few times a week just to get out of the house and clear some headspace. And I started noticing it and it became an aha moment where every gas station I passed was just loaded with landscaping businesses. And our landscaping business that we acquired was also full working. They didn't stop one day because grass grows, especially at that time in the summer. So I looked at that and then I stepped back and I looked at the industry again. And the barrier to entry is, do you have a couple thousand bucks and can you go to load? That's why there's so much fragmentation. But if you look at it in terms of a funnel, you have the public companies for landscaping that do and there's a big differentiating factor here. Landscaping and lawn service are two completely different things. So the bigger companies tend more to be landscaping, especially with commercial. And the very bottom of the funnel is Jim and his truck with his buddy maybe driving around and picking up lawns to do service as they can. So I looked at the industry, the top and bottom of the funnel, and then started looking in the middle of what was going on. And there's a clear difference between the guy in his truck and the guy that had six trucks or eight trucks or 10 trucks. And in large, even the people with 10 trucks, they started in landscaping. They were 17, 18 years old. They were working for a guy or they had their own truck and they were going and everyone acted the same. It was big number on the side of their truck. If they even had anything on the side of their truck and you call them and maybe they answer and maybe they don't websites were very outdated if they had one if you called and by the luck of your pants someone actually answered it was yeah let me get back to you in like a week and I looked at the industry as someone put this on Twitter and it summarizes what I'm saying pretty well go to a space where you're not competing with MBAs and Stanford grads and there's no disrespect to the landscaping industry but there's not many MBAs and Stanford grads in this industry so That is what on the overview side led me into the landscaping industry. I get that question a ton. Why are you leaving real estate where you are at as a CEO of this big company and going into landscaping? And it's, have you ever looked at landscaping? Because what's right for the taking in a lot of ways. It's very geo-heavy, geo-restrained because you have trucks and unless you're expanding and acquiring in other areas, you can't go to those areas just because it doesn't make sense. But still a good business because of the fragmentation. I look at that as a positive or a lot of people look at it as a negative. The biggest negative by far that I found in this industry, Alex, was the pricing factor. So in the last 30 years, pricing to do basic lawn service on your home has not changed at all. Variance levels, plus or minus. So if it cost a hundred bucks to cut your yard in 2000, it costs a hundred bucks to cut your yard today, maybe 105 if we're lucky. So And the reason of that is the fragmentation. So the customer acquisition cost is vital to growing your business. And another outlet that we're looking to grow the business and which is another reason of jumping into landscaping, was the acquisition of other businesses is the best way to acquire customers and our core belief. And you're taking a lot of the second tier funnel people that have three trucks, four trucks, five trucks and acquiring them and bringing their customers and then you start expanding your geographic touch and your wheel of pegs going out different directions.
0: So within your first 30 days in the business and probably a little bit more at this point, you've talked about having opportunities to begin acquiring these companies. Did that come a little faster than you perhaps expected?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So within the first week that I bought this business, and this business has been around since nineteen seventy-five. It was extremely well known in the area. It does all the prominent businesses, right? The banks, the retail chains, the Starbucks, the Verizons, all the big name brand, you know, the bank president's house. So it's very well known. So when in the guy who sold, it was kind of unexpected to the outside world. And I was 60 years old, wants to take some chips off the table, wants to go fishing, very owner-operated, dominated industry. And when people found out he sold, and it was to a younger guy like myself, 31 years old, I got a call (laughs) instantly. Do you want to buy my business? What'd you pay for this business? Which obviously is an interesting question to ask someone. So I got that second week, got another call. The third week was Christmas. I did not get a call. The fourth week was the first week of January. I got a call. So you're talking within the first couple of weeks, I've already gotten calls about buying other people's businesses and we got to wait for the right ball to come before we swing. But we are going to be extremely aggressive and swinging at the right pitch. And that's our method of growth as of today.
0: So you obviously looked at several businesses before buying this one. What made you decide to get this one?
1: There's no shortage of landscaping businesses for sale. You can go on any of the public sites and find a 100 of them yourself. So the factor that led me to this one was the longevity that it's been around, the quality of service that it has. And I looked at that in the form of when I was going in due diligence and pulling the contracts, there are clients in this business that have been here since the 80s. I mean, that's I wasn't born in the 80s. And there's clients that have been here in the 80s. I mean, that was unbelievable to me. The customer loyalty is very high here. And the level of commercial clients, when you talk about banks or a Starbucks or the grocer down here, Publix, when you talk about those as being your clients, it means something because A, they're very price conscious because the competition, someone can undercut you very easily in this industry and they get solicited all the time. And the fact that this business was able to have those customers and keep those customers meant the service level was good and the reputation means something. And that's what drew me to the business was the reputation, first and foremost.
0: I remember before we've talked about the reputation of this business and then the owner in particular. Can you describe the owner a little bit and how he interacted with the company and then the community around him?
1: Yeah, so there's challenges to this of what I'm going to say, but it's also what built this business and built the reputation that it has. So the original owner who started in 1975 passed away unexpectedly in 2000, went to the dock in the morning and then passed away that night. The seller that I bought it from started working with him when he was a kid and became the general manager in the 90s and all the way through and then took over when the original owner died. There's a level of trust when you've seen someone at your property or in your town for 30, 40 years doing your property. And some of the challenges that I spoke about just a second ago that I'm facing as a new owner were the things that made him great in the sense of just handshake deals, knowing exactly what they want in their property, when they want it, and those sort of human efforts that coming from the COO of a real estate development company, I didn't have a ton of those. And it's refreshing to see that deals can be done still like that. And people trust people like that. Very, very day-to-day operated business with him. There was a level of a comment that he made that I thought was so true was, we were riding in the truck in the first two weeks. And he told me this when the original owner died and I was a general manager. I never filled the owner role. I stayed as a general manager in all aspects of the business without knowing it. And I thought that was great self-reflection. And it was so true. And it made the service great. It kept the reputation good. But the business side and the back end and the growth levels that owners go through of pushing forward or not, were not there. And that's part of the challenge of what I'm walking into, but also opportunistic. So I'm excited about it. But it also makes you going to lose sleep at night as well.
0: So when you were riding around with the owner in those first two weeks, how did you get a sense for what this person's role was in the company and can you fill it and what things are you really going to have to learn in order to take over this business properly
1: every owner during due diligence and selling it downplays their role yeah i'm never there i'm hunting and fishing all day this is easy you can walk in and do this and acquiring a landscaping business before on a previous company I knew there was some BS to that. but I also knew some of it was true because it's close enough to where my previous office was that I spied on these guys a little bit before pulling the trigger. And so I thought I knew it all. But I walked in the first day and when he told the guys, he started crying. I was like, oh, man, this guy is not as absent as what I thought he was. Like He is very into this business. And I learned that. And every day that went on, I learned it more and more. And it's because he liked doing it. It was his passion. He's done it since he was 15 years old. And it's a challenge I have to overcome. But you also have to know where your strengths lie, and where your weaknesses are. And my strength is not where his are or were, excuse me. So I have to be able to read the room and read the guys and read the situation and determine, can anyone currently here fill that role of a quote-unquote general manager or some of those services that he does but it's also benefiting me in the sense that I'm getting back to boots on the ground and filling a lot of that void today while I'm learning the crew and the guys because our goal with this is to expand. So it's good for me to see what happens on a day to day basis and not just sitting in the office and playing with models and looking at different companies. But this initial stage, I'm working in the business just as much as working on the business. And I wouldn't have said that prior to buying the business. But it's a reality and it's one of the curveballs that comes up with small businesses. You walk in with a list of 100 things to do and every day something kicks your list back because you're dealing with humans. You're dealing with real problems. You're dealing with a guy has to miss a day because he has to take his kid to school. Why didn't it model someone missing the second day because they have to take their kid to school? So you have to understand the human element to it. And it, you adjust accordingly. Things don't adjust to you. I quickly learned.
0: So how did you adjust to... The way he ran the actual operations of the business, because you said that as the general manager role, the actual quality of the business was really good. They did good work. Their customers liked them. Lots of loyalty there. So what was this company doing prior to buying that they were doing right in that regard?
1: Yeah, so very, I'm not going to say the word micromanaging the guys, but it was very micromanaging the guys of how to do things. But he built, there's six trucks and there's four main supervisors two of them were with him 15 plus years. And so they learned everything about him. Now, while I say all that on the flip side, which is a benefit of my strengths being what they are, being very systematic and being very process oriented, unbelievable at the service, but there was no job list. There was no work order process. There was no extra service process. It was a guy on the crew or the crew supervisor remembering that he fixed a sprinkler head and then telling the boss and then the boss has to remember to bill that client and then the boss has to remember to collect the money from the client and there was too many unknown variables of things that could slip up in that process so it's been a wild ride of blending that high quality of service with process and quite frankly letting those supervisors know like my strength is not this. You know how to edge or you know how to redo someone's plans. You know how to do hardscaping a lot better than I ever will and I can ever research. But here's what I do know: I know I can make you more efficient by adjusting your route. I know I can make you more efficient by sourcing things better and getting them to you quicker and getting you the right resources and adjusting timelines better. It's not just, hey, on your route, don't forget to swing by and do this. You do it with excellence, but... Let's have a process of why we're doing it and when we're doing it. And I think that's helped a ton with the guys is me, A, admitting what my weaknesses are, which is hard for them because they've been with someone that their strength is a complete opposite of mine. So that's what they've always leaned on. But they're slowly seeing the impact of processes and systematic changes that are going on in the business and how that affects them. And it was not an easy transition, even though it's only been a short time but they are starting to see the benefits of that.
0: Yeah, can you talk more about some of the system and business debt that you saw in the company when you first got there and how the operation side was good, but there were some shortcomings on the business side that needed to be shored up?
1: It's almost easier to say there was nothing there than saying what going through a list, but one of the key things, I put this on Twitter and I got some reaction on it. When I was doing due diligence, I was walking through the warehouse and seeing everything. I see the phone on the desk in the office and you just keep walking because it's a phone and I know there's a phone number. Well, the first day I was there, it's not a phone, it's a fax machine. And I was like, where's the phone at in here? I need to make a call or I want to forward, I, I just want to see the monitor and the volume of calls and start tracking this. And it wasn't, it is a fax machine. that had an answering machine. And so just think about the number one way in this industry, customer finds you and you book business and you grow the business is a phone call. Obviously, people are trying to change it with the emails and signups and all that. But it's a phone call. And this business did not have a phone. It had an answering machine. So the owner's response back when I asked, I see you're not in the office all day. What, how do you get the phone? And he's like, ah, I just check it every couple of days, the answering machine. So a customer had to call you. They had to find your number somewhere, which a funny side quick story about that is on one of the trucks, there was no area code. Because 30 years ago, you didn't need an area code. So that's kind of how outdated this was. But they had to find your phone number, call you, want to leave a voicemail, which, Alex, you and I are roughly in the same age. I don't know how many times we leave voicemails. You had to check the voicemail, call them back if they left you their phone number, and then book the client and go through all that process. So it was an awful, awful, painstaking process to get a client. Yet this business was doing almost a million dollars a year by not having an area code on the side of their truck and didn't have a phone. And it was strictly based off reputation service. I mean, customers really went out of their way to find this business to book them. And the idea for me is, well, now let's go pick up all that low hanging fruit. Let's go out and actively be aggressive in getting these clients. A phone is helpful. So that was one of the first things I did was get a phone. But everything with a work order process, the clocking in and out of time cards, and I know this sounds maybe rudimentary, but they would come in and just like, hey, yeah, I'm here at seven o'clock and I'm leaving at 3.30. And again, someone has to remember that and or like write it down like on a little notepad. So putting in a new payroll system where you have to physically put your fingerprint in and clock in and clock out, A, that holds your employees accountable. B, it pays them fair wages for what they work. And it also makes us more efficient so we're not overpaying people. And it's one of those things that in the beginning, the employees really kick at, like, oh, you don't trust us or why are we doing this? I've never done this before. I just told the guy what my hours were and I had to go, OK, I mean, that's definitely a way to do it. That's not going to be this way to do it. We manage our money here and we're going to manage our money and I will pay you for every hour you ever work in this business, regular time or overtime, but it will be monitored. And this is the way we're doing it. And they've slowly start to come around to it. So I wasn't being disrespectful when I said they did nothing. But from my stance and my world coming in, it's a complete overhaul, really.
0: So those are some of the ideas that you added to the business. What were some that they told you about the business that they think could be improved?
1: It's easy to see when I walk in that I'm not a lifelong landscaping guy. Those guys can sniff this out super quick. And they clearly sniff me out. So the longest-tenured crew supervisor there, I felt like, has a shot to improve the company and move up in the company and put together and all these sort of things. But I needed them to get to know me more than, I'm going to call it, a boss-level kind of relationship. So the first Saturday, I jumped in the truck with them, with this crew. And I told the seller, we we're still in our transition career, I said, hey, stay home today. I'm jumping in the truck with the guys. And I told him treat me like it was my first day. So I was picking up trash. I was throwing mulch down, doing rock, all those sort of things. And they started asking me personal questions like, where are you from? What's your family like? And I started asking them personal questions and getting to know each other. And I asked the question, what would you do differently here? What can improve this business? And the supervisor's pretty squared away guy, said, I care about this business. I love this business. I love the previous seller. I've been here almost 20 years. But it's tough when you have a couple kids and I'm not getting paid any extra if I bring on clients or not. And I've brought on clients before and it just makes me not wanna do it because of the effort it takes. And okay, fair point, rightfully so. If you bring on a customer in my world, you should get paid for that. If the company's gonna benefit, you're gonna benefit. So we instantly put in a commission program for the supervisors to start of commission for new clients. If a neighbor sees that you're doing a good job and you're quality of service, Listen, they know you more than they know me. And if a client joins us because of your work, then there should be a level of reward for that. And I immediately put that in. And then one of the other things, just a financial reward that's hard in this industry is finding good help and good talent because of the price point you're at in a lot of regards. So we instituted a employee referral fee. So it's 150 bucks if you refer an employee and they stick out for 30 days with us and Two days later, we had an employee referred, interviewed, and hired a week later. And the guy that refers him kind of takes him under his wing and shows him the ropes and guides him, so to speak, and mentors him. And it's just little things like that that don't mean a ton in the grand scheme of things in the sense of the idea of it, paying someone 150 bucks to refer an employee, but the effect that it has long-lasting, they're going to mentor that employee. They're going to make sure the right people show up in this business they're going to make sure they get the client next door because hey they're also going to get a couple more bucks in their pocket so doing those sort of things i think will make this company grow quicker even than what's planned
0: is there anything that the previous owner did to make sure that the quality of work done with customers was good did he have some training programmed was there an incentive thing that he did or is there something that you're going to carry on to help continue that
1: nothing systematic that was done. A lot of the client relations part of this business in the previous seller's world was done by his cell phone or just by seeing them at the local grocery store. and Hey, how'd you do? I was our guys that week? And him driving to every single property within a two-week span, you're talking over 300 properties that this guy has to drive to, plus all add-on services and landscaping jobs that he oversees intimately. So there wasn't anything previously for that Moving forward, obviously, keeping that line of communication open early is crucial, but also sending notifications to the clients when we're leaving the job. I'm going to use you as an example. Alex just finished the service at your house. Can you give a thumbs up if pleased with the service? If not, please let us know and we can fix it. And building in that automation tool to send that notification after every time a job's complete. And our supervisors are aware of this, obviously, but it's making sure that everyone's accountable through the customer's eyes. Because that's the only job that, or that's the only performance that matters in a lot of ways. And I tell the guys, landscaping is a funny business because your performance is so binary. It's one or zero. It's you did the job or you didn't. There's no half job of this. If you did it half, you didn't do it. And it's so visible. It's the first thing people notice when they pull up to a house. So do a good job. And one of my comments to, especially the supervisors, is, take care of the properties, take care of the trucks, and I'll take care of you and I'll take care of this business. And I'm hoping that means something to them because it means a lot to me. So I'm hoping moving forward that really holds true with
0: them. I'm curious, one thing that first-time acquirers are a little nervous of is making sure that clients will accept them as the new owner when the previous owner had all the relationships. So I'm curious, in your case, did you have any customer stop their service with you because you became the owner instead of the old owner?
1: To answer your question, no, but I was very, very conscious of this. A, in this industry, anytime you buy a landscaping business, because the contracts are the way they are with the fragmentation, you're always very nervous of clients fleeing. And go back to a comment I said, they know the guy in the truck who cuts their lawn a lot more than they know me, or they know the in general a previous seller my previous seller is very different because he was so hands-on and this comment i'm going to make shows why the quality of service was so high he cares so much about the business and so much about the name and the community that he has went above and beyond even what our contractual agreement of assisting me in the transition was and making sure customers stay with me making sure i met the key customers making sure i had coffee with the bank president to make sure that we have 15 banks that we do and I. I had coffee with the bank president to make sure there was a smooth transition. And it was all orchestrated by the previous seller. And I was definitely fearful. I even modeled, I modeled 70% of turnover initially in the first 60 days. And thankfully, we're nowhere near that. We've only had two people dropping because they moved out of state. And I'm trying to take the people that have moved back in their home. But no one has blatantly left. And the seller has been awesome. And again, the reputation of the business has meant so much more than what they don't know me from Joe and the previous seller leaving. So they're really believing in their reputation of the business, the quality of service they've had for 20 years, some, and the guys that are out in the field performing the job.
0: What questions did customers have for you when you told them that you were the new owner? Or did they just say, right, okay, sounds good?
1: Some, yeah. So you're dealing, well, I'm dealing with change on our employee side, so our internal side, new processes, new systems. And while I believe in them wholeheartedly, and I know it's going to improve us sometimes, as I discussed previously, the employees aren't so sure. Well, there's also change on the customer side because the previous seller would mail their invoice. So think about this, it's time for Alex to pay his invoice. So me, the accountant or person doing the billing, prints your invoice writes it or prints it, puts it in an envelope, stamps it, goes to the post office, mails it. You get the mail. We're only accepting checks previously. So Alex has to see his invoice. Remember to pay it because I know you're going to stick it in your drawer or on your fridge or wherever you stick it. And then also write the check, envelope it, stamp it, go to the post office, mail it. I got to get it back. So we're going on anywhere from the earliest five days, the latest 45 days of payments being out and for cash flow in a business like this, that was awful. I mean, it was one of the very, very first things that I needed to change with very high priority. So the conversations with the customers, some were beyond happy. You're going to get an email invoice and you can pay online. You never have to write another check in your life to us. And others like, well, I like writing checks. I like going to the post office because I'm 65 years old, 75 years old. And that's part of my day is I go to the post office and that's what I like to do. <laughs> and getting all the customers over is harder than what I imagined because I'm dealing with people that have done it only one way for 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. And the demographic of the customer is a little older and it's just different for change for them. So I fought some resistance on that. But in terms of the service, the question was, is the same guys cutting my yard the same day and the same time? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Great. I hope I never see you. Okay. All right. So that was pretty much the conversation with the customers and the painstaking moments of trying to transition them from checks to online payments. A, easy for them, but B, the cash flow management in this business is crucial. This business, if anyone's ever going to get into it, I'd say it comes down to labor cost, fuel cost, route density, and that is beyond crucial. And then your cash flow and how long your cash is out and not. So I had to assure those three items are pretty quickly.
0: So if the previous owner only accepted checks, what methods do you accept now? And why?
1: (laughs) Yeah, believe it or not, we do accept all forms of payments, credit cards, ACHing, cash, although I do not like cash. I do not like the cash being handed over multiple times. So Listen, as simple as something as QuickBooks has made life a lot easier than what it was for the previous seller. And again, this is more about efficiency and streamlining everything. So, again, customer adoption to it is slow, but we're getting there towards 100% of customers potentially one day paying all credit cards a day they receive their invoice. And then I want my complaint to be we're paying too much in credit card processing fees versus I have to go to the post office and pick up 250 checks.
0: Yeah, certainly. And to the point about the credit card fees, if it means if you pay 3% credit card fee, but you get cash 45 days earlier than you probably would otherwise or even 30 or 20 days, that's going to be pretty significant. So have you seen any trickle down effects from having cash earlier in the conversion cycle than you did previously? Have you seen some sort of operational benefit or just a little bit more headroom? What does that look like on a day to day basis?
1: Good question. I haven't seen the full fruit of it yet, just because we were so well prepared for what the first 90 days would look like. So we were well equipped to handle all needs of capital, but I've moved invoicing dates up. So the previous seller was invoicing on the last day of the month for that previous month's service. So when you really look at it, go back to what I said, anywhere from five days to 45 days, the previous seller was floating service of that customer for 35 to 75 days sometimes of free service. So I've incrementally moved the invoice dates up to the 15th of the month. So we're fronting you two weeks, you're up paying two weeks, and there will be a day come where we're invoicing on the first of the month where we're actually gonna provide the service versus billing in arrears. So I haven't seen on a day-to-day basis a fruit of moving invoice dates and doing credit card processing up yet. But there is a substantial number of customers that have paid ahead of time of what they normally are. We are tracking the age of what accounts are and when they paid previously and when they're paying now. And we are definitely seeing an uptick in that. So it's one of those, yes, the 3% sucks sometimes. But right now, I'll pay that 3% 100 out of 100 times to get our cash flow stabilized and get customer adoption on and get customer behavior to a certain level.
0: Yeah, certainly. It's going to be a fun discussion as you keep going in your business. I want to ask you about Twitter though, because you mentioned that you raised the entire equity installment all from Twitter, like the equity deal portion of buying this business you raised entirely from Twitter. Can you talk a little bit about that experience?
1: I did. I pinched myself all the time thinking about it because five years ago, no one ever would have thought to raise money on a social media platform, at least in my world. So I had the idea. I found the business, talked to the broker about it, went through a little bit of due diligence, put the deck together. And listen, man, I grew up dirt poor. I don't have friends and family that have a ton of money laying around to invest. You know, the, again, I'm 31. So the people I grew up with are just now and getting into the fruits of their careers. And capital just wasn't easily attainable from other people other than myself. Being just lucky and landing the jobs, i landed so i had to have outside capital and i did not want to go sba for a very specific reason because i got asked this a ton being the first acquisition and the goal of this listen there's a short-term goal and a long-term goal the short-term goal was to acquire a good business and stabilize it and grow the long-term goal was to be in an industry where acquisition of other companies within that industry are easily attainable and performing a whole company so Think of all the things I talk about landscape businesses need. It fits nicely under a hold company, a hold code that can do those sort of things or a parent company. So jumping back to the Twitter, I sent it to a guy named Nick Huber, who's a sweaty startup. And he's becoming very, very famous on Twitter for some of his posts and the comments he has. But his brother's in landscaping. And he made a post one night about his brother. And I sent it to him. And I'm like, hey, Nick. And Nick and I followed each other. and We spoke before because so we were both in real estate. And I sent it to him and he looked at it and he's like, that's an unbelievable business. Where are you at with it? And I said, "Nowhere, Because I can't raise the capital for it. And I looked at SBA as a transactional partner, not as a partner to have in the business and to help me grow it and get to a long-term goal. SBA would be great on the second deal, not the first deal for me. Because when I needed to call someone to talk about payment processes or structures, the SBA is not going to pick up the phone. They're going to say, is it February 1st yet? We need our loan payment back. Whereas a true investor would pick up that call and jam with me and talk things through, talk me off the ledge if I needed to. So Nick really encouraged me to post it on Twitter. My follower account was not 30,000, 40,000, 50,000. I had a couple thousand followers, and all majority from the real estate world. And he encouraged me to post on Twitter, and I thought he was nuts. So I'm laying in bed one night, and I just post. Hey, found this business, really interesting. Here's what I would do, A, B, C. Here's the pros, here's the cons. And I put my phone down and I'm laying in bed with my wife and my phone's just blown up, buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. And the result of that thread was about 350 people reaching out through direct message. And I made an effort to get their emails or contact every single one of them. And it ended up being, at the end of it, about 25 real multiple conversations with people going very in-depth, just like a normal financial or capital raised would be the real estate world or development world, it became very similar for this. And within 45 days of that post, I had all capital that I needed raised. And the investor is JD Ross from Open Door, And I couldn't have asked for a better investor, better partner. He's a hyper growth guy and he is forward thinking and he's pushing limits and he's very aggressive. And that's something that I highly value and respect and couldn't be happier to have him as a partner.
0: Yeah, certainly. So can you describe a little more about the types of people you heard from? Because if I remember like, from our previous discussions, they weren't followers of yours for the most part.
1: Absolutely, they were not. I had guys that were private equity guys that were hedge fund guys that were analysts at very prominent venture capital firms. You're talking the Sequoias of the world, High net worth individuals, guys that were in a different industry and maybe owned their own business and made some money and had some to spare. Lawyers, quite a few lawyers reached out. But in my post, very distinctively talk about landscaping So I just put it all out there. And to get PE guys and VC guys and hedge fund analysts and the children of guys that are worth $20 billion reaching out was just shocking to me. <laughs> This cannot be where your deal flow is coming from. This is my post on Twitter. And you don't even follow me. And it gained a lot of traction. And the comment I got back when going into the deeper conversation and showing my models and showing what the plan is long term of rolling up these landscape businesses, as well as short term of proving I can do this. It became apparent that good deals are hard to find, but backing the right plan in the right industry when they took a second to be open-minded to the landscaping business, they made a lot of sense to a lot of people. And then it just came down to risk tolerance for the money required to invest versus not. And did they believe in me? Really? Because you're backing me more than the idea sometimes and very good reception. So I was very pleased with it. Shocking. I still talk to a lot of them today and I probably left a lot of money on the table in the raise and maybe it was the inexperience of the raise for this industry. A lot of investors wanted to come in at different levels and a, I didn't want to take on in my mindset was I did not want to take on more money than what's needed because it's the first one. I need to see how this goes. And I also didn't want to be handcuffed by someone wanting to have an hour long conversation every three days because they put their last bit of money available into this business and I needed room to work and room to implement these ideas. I knew it would take some time to do that. So I needed someone that had blind trust, really, because of COVID. I didn't meet anyone face-to-face. Believe in the model, believe in the idea, but also give me room to work and believe in the bigger picture. And if we're successful, which I firmly believe, obviously, by putting my own stuff into it and putting my own neck on the line, then we're going to grow and we're going to prosper this accordingly. And that's kind of how I looked at it. So I think I left money on the table. And it's positively, because it's not what was needed and the raise was what was needed, but in the traditional capital raise world, where it's just raise as much money as possible and be oversubscribed, I felt like that would have been a negative.
0: Certainly. So how do you plan on using Twitter in the future in regards to capital specifically?
1: Going back, the long-term goal of stabilizing this business and becoming a holding company for future landscaping and other home service businesses We're not blocking herself out of other businesses like HVAC and plumbing and pool service. I know you've had a lot of great guests on. Colin Hathaway one. Rich Jordan's another. Definitely admire those guys. But using the network effect that Twitter has, think about this. A guy that posted a post about landscaping ended up getting inquiries from all realms of the finance world and investing world to back this idea and back this person. The ability that we have to raise more money is going to be strictly based on the success we have with the first venture. And it goes into the mindset, again, of why I didn't take on more investors when I probably could have is because myself and JD are very focused on proving this to be a success and then being able to go raise further if needed, whether that's through SBA or through private outreach on Twitter to succeed in our long-term goal of rolling up other landscaping businesses. So I would definitely use Twitter again the outreach is growing. I think being active on Twitter, it's not, oh, you're on social media all day. You're building a brand, which I hate that word as much as anything, but you are building a brand and it only helps. But none of that matters if I can't prove success in this first business.
0: Moving into some closing questions. What class would you teach in college if you could teach about any subject you wanted?
1: Yeah, I told you you're going to hate me for this, but I'm going to hijack it. And I would not teach a class in college. But as a former educator, I can do this to you. I would teach a class in high school how to get rich without going to college. And I believe in college. I believe in what it stands for. If you have a plan and a path of going to college and a way to pay for it, you should go to college. And it's an unbelievable life experience. I went to college, could not afford college, and ended up having to play poker to supplement college. And I don't know if it was needed or not. And it's a tragedy that I look at it that way, but I think there's other people and I don't think college is for everyone. And I have friends that are in investment banking today that other friends or people we know that are plumbers or are landscapers or are roofers make way more money than the guys that are in the investment banking world. And obviously there's opposite ends of the spectrum there, but the genesis of the class would be find what you're good at and can make money on and don't go into debt there are other paths while they are unsexy there are other paths where you can make a good living for yourself and don't be forced into this one hole
0: i like that class that'd be really fun it would
1: be the most popular class in school i guarantee you
0: oh it definitely would be absolutely you mentioned poker there i realize we never talked about poker are there some lessons from playing poker that you've started to apply to business or just working with people
1: A hundred percent. So I started in the mid-2000s, much like everyone on online poker, the $0.05, $0.10 online games, and then gradually grew out of it. And at the end, pretty recent, before COVID, I was playing in private rooms with guys you see on ESPN and quasi-famous people. And the discipline that poker taught me of reading people, reading situations, your risk tolerance Your betting size is much like your investment size and the patterns that that holds. And in today's business that I have, the ability to read the room and just shut up and listen is so impactful for me that I really learned and honed in poker. The guy that talks the most at the table is not normally the best player at the table and the most successful player. So shut up and listen and watch. And being able to do that in this business has helped a ton. And I credit the majority of that to my poker life, sort of speak, of being disciplined and understanding risk reward and how to read people for sure.
0: Did you have any mentors in poker or did you just kind of learn for yourself with books and YouTube and whatnot?
1: A lot of early losses taught me a lot of lessons, man. Thankfully we were at the five cent ten cent stage and I didn't need the money. I was playing more for fun. And as I kind of gradually got older and needed it to pay for college and supplement my lifestyle as a teacher, I got more serious into it. Doing all the things that curious people do, reading the books, going on YouTube, watching the shows on ESPN, and I correlated this part to basketball or sports or football, fans watch the game for entertainment. Coaches, players, scouts, they watch the game to learn and to pick things up. And I would watch those things, right? Like I'm watching ESPN and I'm seeing where their hand motions are, where their chips are set, how they put their cards away. All the little nuances that can make you a successful poker player or at least remove the risk. I have a really big investment philosophy and, and there's also a sports philosophy as a coach and a poker philosophy. There's a million books that tell you how to succeed. All these books that tell you how to win in business, how to win in life. In every story, there's always a variable reasons of why you fail, but there's always a few core reasons on why you fail in anything. And for me, what taught me was whatever you're doing, find out what causes failure the most for whatever failure means to you in that particular thing you're doing in life and do everything you can to be opposite of that. And what you're left with is if you remove everything that causes you to fail, the only thing you're left with is then you must win. So I kind of play defense to a degree by removing things that make you lose, cash flow management being awful, high customer acquisition cost, bad people skills. If you're good at those things that remove reasons why businesses fail, underpricing, then the only alternative is we win or we're successful. So poker definitely taught me that. Studying the game taught me that. And I'm hopefully translating that over.
0: That's wonderful. I need to get better at poker. So I'm hoping you can teach me a little bit over time. <laughs>
1: I don't know how good of a teacher I am, but I'll definitely try. I'll definitely try.
0: There's got to be something I can learn from you. What's a belief you used to hold fairly strongly that you've changed your mind on? So
1: again, I think this ties back to my coaching days in a previous life. And I took it right to business of hire the most talented people and they'll figure it out. And I made a lot of mistakes, I think, in retrospect of just hiring the most talented people I could at the time. But I believe in that philosophy still to this day, but I would change it just a little bit. You have to hire the most talented people you can find, but you have to do a good job or I have to do a good job of guiding them still and putting them in the right situation the right resources. And that talented person will explode the roof and take you somewhere you've never thought that position can take you. So previously, I was hire the most talented person and just be blind about everything else. Take all the negatives. They'll figure it out. They're talented. Let them do what talented people do. Whereas now I'm hiring the most talented people you can, but you still have to guide. You still have to put them in position to succeed.
0: I like that. What's the best business you've ever seen?
1: I've thought about this. I knew you were going to ask this and I've thought about this and I struggle with it on the investor side because I was so real estate heavy in it. I'm going to hijack this question again to you and you're going to kill me. But I'm actually going to go with a very popular business that I hate. I cannot stand this business I'm about to say and it's the property management business of real estate. A lot of people are getting into the business and it's very, on the outside, very popular because I'm a landlord essentially and I'm collecting a check once a month and I'm passing a big part of the check over to the owner, but I'm keeping fees and I'm gonna make money in fees. I think that business is awful. I was in it. I was the COO of one that had buying and selling years anywhere from 800 to 1200 units, ranging from $600 condos and bad parts of towns to $15,000 a month mansions in the best part of towns of Orlando. So I was on all ends of the spectrum. You have multiple people to answer to. You have a tenant that wants everything the cheapest, the quickest. I mean, it's not their fault ever. You have an owner that wants everything the cheapest on his expense side, but he wants you to get the most rent possible. There's never a reason why his property should send a day open ever No matter what's going on, the day someone moves out, you should have someone in there. And it's just a very bad marketplace, I think. And a ton of people are getting into it. And I'm very vocal about it on Twitter. Do not do it. Do not do it. Do not do it. I understand the benefits at scale. Obviously, collecting fees for just being there and collecting a check is great. But generally, those are the worst type of property managers. You have to be very involved. And all you're doing on the financial side is passing the bill over you're really not making any more money on a given month. So no matter how great you are, you're never going to get a dollar more than that fee. If you're bad, then obviously all the things that come with being a bad property manager exist. So I hate that business. I was in that business. So I'm sorry to hijack your last question, but do not get in the property management business. I beg you.
0: Go for it. That's a great place to stop because we haven't talked about property management on this podcast yet. So maybe you'll be the one to give it a slam one of these days, but Thank you so much, Mike, for joining. It's been really fun to hear about your first few weeks in the business and raising your investment off Twitter and all that stuff. So, so excited to watch it go through and I'm excited that you got to share a little bit today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks. Alex. And I do have to say, I learned a ton from your previous guests. I need to give a shout out to some of them. The Aspen Creek Landscaping gentleman and Colin Hathaway and Trish from Chenmark. I definitely listened quietly or respectfully. Some of those episodes when I was going through due diligence of my business. So, definitely shout out to you and your previous guests because they're very insightful.
0: Those are very insightful people. That's a great group. I love having folks like that on, and I'm excited for you to join that landscaping group on the podcast.
1: Absolutely. That'd be awesome.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find things like an owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, LightBook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.